Oh, hello, and welcome to Movie Maker, the podcast. Uh, I'm Eric Stoyer, and today on the show we've got Scott Barber. He is one of two directors of a new documentary called The Orange Years, which is about Nickelodeon, of course, the, uh, the kids' TV network that was especially popular in the 80s and 90s. And the movie makes a really great case for the idea that Nickelodeon does not get its proper due as a cultural force, uh, huge influence on the aesthetics and the business of kids' TV, also the sense of humor of lots of kids and uh, people that went on to create today's kids' entertainment. Um, the story is largely focused on a woman named Geraldine Laybourne, who was an executive and a creative visionary who was really responsible, along with a lot of other women, in creating the the uh, the look and feel and just just kind of everything that Nickelodeon was in its heyday. Uh, talk a lot to Scott about the movie and Nickelodeon, of course, but we also talk a lot about what it took to make the movie. Scott uh, wasn't someone that was in the industry already, didn't have a lot of contacts or uh, money, and so there's a lot of really interesting and, and practical uh, tips and advice and insight in the conversation that I, that I hope you'll enjoy. Uh, I should say also, Scott is working now on a documentary about Guar, the band Guar. Pretty excited about that, so we talk a little bit about that and hope to have him back on the show when that uh, when that movie's ready to, to talk about. As always, you can hit me up at eric at moviemaker.com. Send us feedback about the show or guest ideas, people we should be talking to on the show. And here's Scott Barber. One funny thing is when I was watching the movie, I had totally forgotten that uh, I went to the uh, the taping at Universal City Walk for the Keenan and Kel intro, the theme song with Coolio and everything. It was like, uh, <laughs> and so when I saw that, I was like, oh shit, I was there. That's awesome. So you're in it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm in there somewhere, you know, waving. Oh, my that's hands. awesome. I was uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I assume you grew up loving Nickelodeon. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I grew up. You know. In, in our trailer that we've got, you know, Geraldine Laybourne, who is the movie's kind of about Geraldine Laybourne, even more than it's about Nickelodeon. Uh, you know, she says, you know, mothers were going to work. Divorce rates were high. Kids were coming home. Latchkey kids, things like that. And I was that perfect demographic, you know, in the 80s and 90s um, where I would, you know, come home from school, get the uh, get the key from under the mat and let myself in. My mom and dad both worked and then they d- got divorced, you know, and around the same time, you know, cable was becoming a big part of children's lives. So I was really the, the ideal demographic that, (laughs) that, that she's talking about it in that trailer. And, and, you know, we go into it a lot more in the movie. So yeah, Nickelodeon was a big part of my childhood, huge part. Um, I got to really experience, you know, the eighties and nineties, both, I think have their own cool parts, uh, to them. And I got to experience both. So I feel really lucky. And Adam, uh, Sweeney, the guy that I co-directed the film with, you know, we've been friends since we were uh, watching these shows together, since we were little Is kids. Is that right? Uh-huh. So it's pretty, it was pretty cool. special of us to get to go on that journey together all these years later. And uh, yeah, it was it was crucial to our friendship staying together, you know, because this is before social media. And so he moved away. His parents split up and he moved, you know, realistically, it was only about 35 miles away. But that's like another. Oh, when you're a kid, that may as well be on Mars. Might as well be on Mars. Exactly. So, uh, you know, we would call each other and talk about SNCC. You know, there was this thing that Nickelodeon did Saturday Night Nick that they were they were targeting kids that were exactly our age, you know, too too old to be in bed but too young to be out on the town, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, 12, 11 to 13, kind of that area. And we were that perfect demographic and we were watching SNCC. We'd watch it together and we fell in love with, are you afraid of the dark in particular, you know, and to this very day, you know, Adam and I have a, a super 
big passion for horror films and that's kind of where it came from. So it was, it was a, it was, it was something that, you know, was certainly a, uh, personal to me. This documentary was certainly personal, something I was very passionate about. Is Adam someone you do other projects with too? Is he a creative partner? Is this uh, something that you bonded over as a particular project you wanted to do together? It was a, 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 a project we wanted to do together. Adam and I had written a couple of scripts together before, and that's kind of what we wanted to do with our life was be like a screenwriting duo. Uh, Adam's a really great writer, uh, and he had, uh, you know, that was really his passion, um, and it was mine too. But, um, uh, you know, we, we kind of got sick of, you know, you write it and then you have to shop it, and, you, you know, you hear, oh, well, this is what's in right now. These are the kind of scripts that are in right now. Oh, this script is great if you just change this. And, you know, we kind of wanted to say, I wish we could, what happened was we basically said, you know, after we'd written our second one, it's like, man, I wish that we could just make a film <laughs> from start to finish where we write it, we direct it, and we produce it. And we thought, okay, well, what, <laughs> how do we do that? We don't have any money and we've never made a film before. So we thought a, a documentary would be something that's pretty cool. And I'm an editor uh, and uh, and I have a video production business uh, with my wife in Houston. So we had all the cameras and I certainly knew that we could edit it. And so I said, let's just make a documentary together, you know? Uh, so we said, um, what could we make a documentary about that people would think was pretty cool? And we thought, you know, Nickelodeon, um, Adam had had some experience with some fandom docs. He's been in two Star Wars documentaries. Uh, <laughs> he was interviewed in two different ones. Um, and so we knew like a fandom thing would be cool. And they're like, yeah, but it can't just be, um, you know, Adam says empty calories, you know, or it's like just nostalgia banking. It has to be something that there's a story there. Um, and so once we did some research on Nickelodeon and found out that, uh, you know, there's this woman, Geraldine Laybourne behind yeah. it all. It's like, oh, that's the story. That's actually the story. You know, when you say it's the Nickelodeon story and people go, oh, I remember that. That was cool. That brings back good feelings. That might get people interested. But her story is what's actually going to make this a, a cool film. Yeah, I mean, um, she she's someone I had never ever heard of, and I and I, I do pay relative. You know, when I was even when I was younger, I paid relatively close attention to this kind of stuff. I was always interested mm -hmm. in in media, but um, yeah, she she's something else. I mean, watching her in right? this movie and seeing all the yeah. stuff that she did, seeing uh, the influence that it's had, because you know, you think of Nickelodeon. I guess you know, you're a kid, you just assume that it's like a a million people, like it's just a corporation that makes things. And then you realize that, you know, it's actually a handful of creative people yeah. that are also have, you know, some business savvy and they know how to, how to make things, but they, they invented something that is, that is still so prevalent aesthetically. And, 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 and yes. the sense of humor is, is, uh, is in so much of the, the culture. I mean, uh, kids yeah. stuff, but, but, but the culture generally, um, so did did you did all all the interviews with the with the people, including her and the and the cast members from the shows? Were those all interviews that you were able to to do in person, or those are those like from different sources? We our crew filmed all of those. That's great. Um, there were like yeah, so all those interviews we booked them and we shot them. There were a couple that came up like last minute <laughs> that um, maybe Adam or I weren't able to be at because I mean the thing is, you know, this documentary, I'm really you know, I'm proud of it um, because I think it's, you know, really fun, good doc. But also, like, you know, people kind of compare it to things like these bigger productions. This was just me and Adam. And then it became other people that helped us out. You know, we, we got a really great team. But it, there's no big studio behind this. This is just a small labor of love thing. And, and, and um, 
So it was our team that did all that. We filmed all those interviews. There were a couple that, you know, I'm like... Adam and I still have day jobs, so there were some where, you know, for the budget, you know, we we had to, we'd have a camera guy that we knew, we had a camera guy basically on both coasts, mm-hmm. and so there were a couple of times where we had to just say, oh, just go film this because we couldn't get out there, but that was like maybe three, you know, three, four, the majority of them, we were at them all, but they were all our team. So would you be willing to talk about how you financed? Because it sounds sure. like, you know, you this is this is just an idea that you guys had. You wanted to make a movie and yep. there's not a studio attached to it. So yeah, so how how'd you get the money together to make it? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, we did an Indiegogo uh campaign and Adam and I wanted to do that for a couple of reasons, and that is one, you know, obviously to get some some money to get started. You know, we were two guys that had never made a film before. Um, we knew it might be hard to get an investor to take a chance on us. So, uh, we knew that would be cool. And also we kind of thought, well, this will be our litmus test. Like if it doesn't get funded, then there's no interest in it. And it, it's not a doc that, that, that could, you know, really do well in the long run. So we did meet our goal. Um, and that gave us the money to film most of it. And, we kind of came from like a punk rock background. Um, you know, I, I um, toured in a punk band for a little while. So I was used to doing things super, super, super DIY. And I love doing things super DIY. So we were we would go out to Los Angeles and just crash wherever we could. Yeah. And yeah. we would just film from sunup to sundown. Um, you know, we, we I think the first time we went out to L.A., we um, filmed like 15 to 20 interviews. Mm-hmm. So we were filming like an average of five or six a day um, while because we, we stayed out there for maybe four or five days. And we were just filming, filming, filming with a skeleton crew. Sometimes it was just me and Adam, you know, me behind mm-hmm. the camera and him, you know, talking to the people. Sometimes if we if we had a camera person there that could help us so we could both be engaged and be directors, you know, that we would do that. Um, and we had a great producer, Sean Cawthon. Sean and Adam and I were kind of like the original, like three point <laughs> of it where, uh, Sean came on board and he was a producer, but he really did so many things. And he's gone on to make a couple of his own documentaries. Uh, he has one called Netflix versus the world that's out and it's really great. Um, and he's a great, he kind of served as a cinematographer for it when he was able to be there. But yeah, we, so that's what we did. We filmed, uh, as much as we could, um, with that, original funding from Indiegogo. We took two trips to LA, one trip to New York and one trip to Toronto, uh, and Ottawa in Canada. And after that, we had like something like, you know, 26, 27 interviews out of all of that. And, um, then after that, we were able to, uh, just kind of fund it ourselves with our, our, our team that had grown, you know, some of uh, producers and editors and stuff like that. We were able to kind of put in our own money and uh, that's how we we finished it off for basically all of post production and uh, a couple of extra trips. We took a couple of extra small trips like to Georgia and Nashville and like one more little trip just for some pickup pickup interviews. It's really cool to hear that story because I I think that everyone understands that hypothetically or theoretically like people can make movies now like you know your your phone has a camera on it this is incredibly yes. powerful and that, you know the software on your computer even if you have the most basic version of it you can literally make a movie but in in reality it still seems like so much stuff that comes out is really uh, backed by a more traditional system so yeah. this is uh, it's pretty cool to hear this um you know related to that like without sort of the the, the kind of credentials or the associations with the studio that you might have. Uh, otherwise making the film. How'd you get so many people to to talk to you? (laughs) 
just a lot of work. <laughs> we just yeah. uh, and it got easy. It got exponentially easier. I mean, once you have out. a few, you're like, well, you know, we talked to these folks already. Absolutely, you know, it's not- yeah. absolutely. So it, in the beginning, it was just we made like a spreadsheet of of who all we wanted. And our goal was, you know, we needed it. We knew to to talk about a show. We needed at least one person in front of the camera and one person behind the camera, you know, because we, you know, we knew people would want to see like Larissa Olenek, who played Alex Mack, or Melissa Joan Hart, you know, Keenan and Cal. We knew people would want to see the behind the scene or in front of the camera people, but we also knew that we needed some behind the scenes because a lot of these people were kids when they did this. So you mm-hmm. know, talking about how these shows came about, some could speak to it, but some maybe couldn't because they're like, I was 12, <laughs> you know, I don't know where the show came from, you know, maybe they'd heard secondhand. So we made a list of like, you know, all the people that we wanted and then every way we could find them, you know, on IMDb pro, if we could get their manager, their agent, their publicist, if they had a Facebook, a Twitter and Instagram, we would put those and we would just reach out and try to get as many as we could. Tenacious internet users. Yep. Tenacious internet users. And then, yeah, you know, what would happen is a lot of times, you know, uh, they would say, oh, have you talked to so-and-so? And we'd say, no, we've been trying. And they go, oh, well, let me put you in contact with them. Mm. Once we would develop that rapport with people and they could see that this is a real movie. We 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 weren't just, you know, because I think a lot of times, because it is so easy to film a movie, you see a lot of documentaries and you wonder what happened to them. Oh, yeah. I've, uh, I've, I've put money in on Indiegogos and Kickstarters yeah. a few times for stuff that's never come out. And you, and you kind of understand that that's, that's the, the... W- risk that you're willing to, yeah, that you just have to be willing to take. You know, and I think it's because the editing and all that, that's where it gets really all the post, you know, is where it gets hard, especially for a documentary. Um, and so, you know, we had a vision and we were nice and we weren't trying to make like a TMZ type movie uh, <laughs> and, and we were professional. And then people would call their friends. And that helped. And then also I feel like once uh, we got a couple of people, we could say, oh, you know, we talked to this person. And they're like, oh, okay, well, I see that you're getting, you know, some – you're getting all the people that I know, so I'll do it. And then once we were able to um, cut a little trailer together, that helped us a lot because people could see that we had a vision. When we we did our Indiegogo, we didn't have anything. I would recommend anybody who wants to do a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo – most people probably all already know this, but I didn't, so I'll just say it. Uh, film something first so you can show uh, – because that was the feedback we got. It was just Adam and I. Um, we kind of recreated uh, Nickelodeon sets. Like we were pretending like we were on the set of Pete and Pete like to kind of showcase what shows we wanted to do. Uh, and I think it was a really clever, fun Indiegogo. But I wish – you know, if you could film something and edit it, then you can show people – that you have the skills to film and edit things and you can show them your vision. Uh, so once we did that, that then it got a lot easier because we were able to show people, Hey, this is what we filmed so far. Uh, like a little teaser. And then they could go, okay, that looks cool. That looks like a real movie. I'll do this. So that was the third thing that kind of helped us make it a lot easier to book people. Uh, someone mentions this pretty early in the doc that there was a lot of women behind it, and, yeah, and behind Nickelodeon in the early years, um, or or even in the sort of you know mid era, um, and then and then I still, even though someone said that, I was still surprised to see how many women showed up, especially in in, in executive roles and creative roles as well. But um, yeah, how how do you think that um, influenced the, the 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 look and the vibe of 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 what Nickelodeon was to people in the eighties and nineties? It's one of those things that makes all the sense when you when you when you learn it and then go back and look. I think that it 
it all of those people that we talked to were extremely tough people. Vanessa Coffey, Jerry Laybourne, because they had been treated um, poorly, so it made them stronger and better. And it and 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 they they knew, you know, it just made them so awesome. Unfortunately, that that had to happen to them, you know. But I do I do love the story of, <laughs> you know, them kind of um, getting getting to sexist men getting their comeuppance of, you know, uh, maybe, um, you know, Vanessa Coffey talked about that, how these, you know, she was in the animation business and almost wanted to quit, you know, and then, uh, you know, these people that had treated her poorly, then all of a sudden she's one of the top people at Nickelodeon and they're begging, please, can I pitch a show to her? And it's like, I remember you, buddy. You know, so I think (laughs) that, um, you know, they were out of the box thinkers, you know, Jerry Laybourne was a teacher. And so it makes all the sense that these it wasn't just men in suits <laughs> that were the main people that were making children's TV at the time. It was somebody different, of course, is why it's felt so special and different and unique. And it was created by these survivors, you know, these these badasses. So, yeah, I think it, it influenced it hugely. Um, you know, and Jerry Laybourne and all of them said they weren't – it's not like they felt they wanted it to be like other women. They just gave the job to the best person, and a lot of times it happened to be women. You know, I mean, and you can look at it. Look at Ann Sweeney, who was who's featured heavily in the doc, and she was kind of Jerry's um, like second in command. Look at what she did afterwards. She went on to be president of the Disney Channel, and now she's on the board of directors at Netflix. You know, Angela Santamaro, who was crucial to Nick Jr. in the very beginning. <laughs> She's got, I mean, you can look at, she went on to create Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, all these shows. I mean, Jerry Laybourne had an eye for talent. And, and the proof is in the pudding because you can see all these people went on to do these amazing things after their tenure at Nickelodeon. Uh, this is also mentioned a few times that just things were on the lower budget side. And, that, and yeah. I think even, even, when I, even when we were uh, kids and when I was a kid, I, I remember feeling like that was, it felt, I wouldn't have put that word like low budget around it, but it yeah, felt it yeah. felt more accessible and it felt mm-hmm. funny and kind of patched together in a cool way. Um, and then also there's the you know obviously the connection to MTV and just the way that that had shaped the aesthetic of of what kind of youth TV could look like. Um, at any rate, I, as someone especially who's into DIY or who's had a you know a, a history with punk, you know what? How, how did the uh, how did the, the the low budget aesthetic of Nickelodeon influence you? I didn't know it at the time, but it's it's what made me probably like Nickelodeon so much because they weren't able to rely on these big tricks and song and dance numbers. They had to actually be creative and just focus on writing good stories. And, um, you know, like I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It, it, it might have been low budget, but it didn't look low budget because when you look at a lot of, you know, Nickelodeon's first like some of their first like scripted shows. You know, like, hey, dude, salute your shorts, Pete and Pete. All of that stuff was like single camera filmed more like a movie, not like that multicam sitcom look that everybody else was doing in the 80s. You know, like 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 Full House or something like that. It was filmed like and, and now that's what we see now is all the single camera stuff that that look is. So, I mean, they were using actual real cinematography. They were getting people that really cared about the art form. Um, so yeah, I think they had a low budget, but the artistry was amazing. And I think that's why it caught our eye and influenced us so much, you know, because it was people really passionate doing a, doing a great job. 
Uh, you talk to a, a few Nickelodeon memorabilia collectors too, some obsessives, pretty rad uh, dude at the beginning or the end of the movie, the beginning of the stretch of people that you talk to. Yeah. Um, how'd you get in touch with those people? We'd interviewed a couple of them at the very beginning. Um, there, there's a couple that, that had a, a Nickelodeon themed party and they were in Austin and that's where uh, we were based. And so we, we filmed them first. They were one of the first interviews we ever did. Um, and then there was also a Mondo gallery. Mondo's a, a really cool company based out of Austin that makes yeah. awesome stuff. Yeah. And they did a Nickelodeon gallery and we filmed that. Because, you know, orig- this was at the very beginning before we even filmed any of the actual. We filmed those two before we filmed any interview with Nick Stars. And, you know, we cast a wide net because we didn't, you know, we, we had an idea of the story we wanted to tell. But, you know, of course, a lot of the stories found in the edit. So we just filmed a lot of stuff. Um, in the very beginning and we were kind of, man, it's a bummer that, you know, we got so many Nickelodeon people that were like, I don't know if this is going to fit in there. Uh, and then we're like, Oh, you know, we, we kind of thought of the idea of doing it over the credits, you know, yeah. to show Nickelodeon's lasting legacy. And, uh, so some of them we just knew from, you know, we knew some of the people at Mondo and we knew Wes and Emily. And then we also, the guy, the first guy, um, Al, who's known as the sole purpose. I think I, I was part of every Nickelodeon group imaginable. I wanted to just immerse myself in Nickelodeon to learn everything I could. And I found him on there. He had a lot of cool memorabilia. And I just reached out to him and he was in Southern California. And when we went there to interview some of the other people, we just went down and interviewed him as well. Um, and then there's a, a guy that we interview uh, who, who has an aggro crag. And he actually sent once we once we figured out that we asked other people to send us their footage. So there's one guy in there that actually g- gave us some footage. Um, uh, whenever we were looking for old '80s commercials, uh, I found a YouTube channel and I said, "Hey, I'm doing this Nickelodeon documentary. Can I use your one of these things from your YouTube channel?" And he's like, "Yeah." He's like, "I'm actually a big collector. I have an aggro crag." And I was like, "Ah, record yourself talking about it and send it to me." So then he sent he sent that to us, and he's the second guy that you see in the credits. Uh, his name is uh, the Consumer Time Capsule on YouTube. He's got a really cool like old school uh, YouTube channel. The uh, the Nickelodeon sweatshirt that dude Al has is so so rad. cool. Yeah, Al's Nickelodeon connection was insane. Uh, I wish we could have showed it even more. And it's crazy because that dude's pretty young. Like some of the stuff is like early 80s. Like he had some you can't do that on television stuff. And, you know, I was like, he. I mean, he's a real passionate connector, uh, collector because he's obviously collecting stuff that was before he was even born. But, yeah, he had all sorts of stuff that like only people that worked at Nickelodeon had. Uh, it was crazy. It was it, He had a real cool collection for sure. You can't do that on television for you know for me would have been about when, when I would have started to know what Nickelodeon was and I remember seeing that show quite a bit. So that was one that was the, the one of the first ways that they got content was to acquire it or license it from yes. other countries. And so do, do, do you know much about that show, like what its origins were and how oh, I would yeah. say that people would think of it as a signature Nickelodeon show, but it's yes. not wasn't really made by Nickelodeon. It was a watershed moment for Nickelodeon for sure. And, you know, like you said, in the beginning, Nickelodeon was was just getting show. They weren't making their own programs. They were licensing them because that's that's all they could do. And they kind of it was kind of weird because it was kind of two magical things happening at the same time. Jerry Laybourne was coming in, and she had a very different idea of how to approach kids because she was a teacher, and she wanted to, um, you know, reach them in a more authentic way. And at the same time, 
one of the many shows that they they found was you can't do that on television and she kind of you know that it was kind of happening at the same time and that show was just perfect she was like almost like yes this is exactly what we're looking for these are the kind of programs that we need to make so that show certainly informed all of the 80s and 90s you know i mean one you've got the slime you've got the irreverent comedy you know how they push they push it just to the limit without being so dirty that it can't be on a kid's show like things you would see in Ren and Stimpy Rocco's Modern Life you would see that comedy all over the place and that's kind of where it they got the idea from it's a great show and it's a brilliant show and we got to talk to a lot of people there uh with that show and you know it, it was originally yeah a Canadian show and one thing a lot of people don't know is the Canadian version was very different than the Americanized version. Hmm. It was edited much shorter. They had like bands play, hmm. um, uh, like live music, and they also had live segments where people could call in. It, you can find some of it on YouTube. It's really pretty amazing. Um, I would love to have featured even more of You Can't Do That on Television. That was the show that got me hooked on Nickelodeon, so there, I have a big soft spot for that show. And, you know, Abby Hagyard is uh, in our documentary. She was the mom as well as all of the um, – female character adult female characters uh and we got to interview her in front of those lockers those iconic lockers that the kids came out of that was a pretty amazing experience and then we got to of course interview christine mcglade who went by moose you know she was uh you know she was the main one for me you know her and alistair gillis were kind of the two big ones uh so it was absolutely amazing and um, Roger Price, his estate is, you know, run by a guy named, uh, BD Kennedy and he was super helpful. He got us a lot of great footage. Um, so it was awesome. They're, they're great. That whole crew is awesome. You talked about how, you know, things just, just kind of walk up to the line, you yep. know, in terms of, uh, the humor and the look and everything. And, uh, someone says in the movie that that was why kids responded to it so much. That does seem like a total departure from the way that kids entertainment was uh, designed up until then. Would you, would you say that's right? I would completely agree. And and I think the majority of kids, it, it's, it's so weird, especially for really young people who grew up with cartoon network as a thing. And they never remember the world before it um, that, you know, all kids had was Saturday morning. And when cable was becoming a thing, they usually had a kids channel, but it wasn't actually for kids. It was to get adults to buy cable. You know, they would approach these adults and be like, Hey, you should buy cable. Uh, which that's another thing, you know, young people, even myself who uh, is not a young person has a hard time remembering life before cable. But when it was not a thing and people were like, ah, it's, it's weird to think that someone would ever consider not having cable, <laughs> you know, oh, I don't know, but it was actually a hard sell. And they would say, hey, and we do have this educational kids channel as well. So the whole reason there was kids channels, it was really for adults to get adults to buy cable by saying we had this educational channel for your kids. It wasn't for kids at all. It was for the adults to buy it. So Nickelodeon really was the first channel, um, particularly the Nickelodeon that existed under Jerry Laybourne that was actually for kids four kids and it knew what they wanted so it was totally different yeah completely different than anything and i think completely different than anything really since so how much how much of a sense do you have of what nickelodeon what it is now like is it is it mostly a, like an online content uh what, what what is nickelodeon all about these days i mean i've got a i've got a i've got two little kids um uh they're eight and ten years old and I've got a pretty good sense of it. And I think part of it is that, you know, one thing that Nickelodeon did so well was 
it was um the whole thing that you liked. It wasn't like one show. It's not like people say, "Oh, I want to I just want to watch Double Dare and then change the channel." Or, "Oh, I just want to watch Are You yeah. Afraid of the Dark?" People kids just liked Nickelodeon and that was everything. The bumpers. Yeah, it was like a, it was like a I mean it was like a life lifestyle. It was, it was like, a lifestyle. It, it was It is very much like MTV but just for, you know, just slightly it, Absolutely. Absolutely. The bumpers, the commercials, the gack that you could play with, the Nickelodeon studios that you begged your parents to take you to, the Nickelodeon magazine, it was everything. And I think it's harder to do that these days um, because when I was, whenever I, I think about it, it's hard for me to, to, to think about, because my kids watch you know shows, and it's hard for me to think about which ones are Nickelodeon and which ones are Disney and which ones are Netflix because of you know my kids, they, they, we, we're cord cutters, so we've never had cable. So the only way they watch it is through Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. And I think that it's just different. It's just a different world. I got a couple more questions. Uh, I do have to ask about the Guar documentary that I saw that you're making. Yes. Uh, so what what can you share about your your uh, your work on that so far? I, I'm super excited uh, to get this documentary out there. We're editing it right now. Um, and maybe I'll just tell people who Guar is. I'm, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure that there's a ton of crossover between Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon and Guar. Nickelodeon and Guar, right? But, then again, who knows? I got slimed in both making both documentaries. <laughs> I got slimed. Um, yeah, it's uh, such a fun project to work on, and I, I'm so proud of it. I can't wait to get it out there. Um, Guar, for those that don't know, Guar is a band that I really almost they're they're basically like Americana in a way. Um, Bob Gorman of Guar, he says they're they're a band that's never been famous but they've always been on the brink. They've always had these touches of fame. And Guar, they wear these costumes of uh, mo- they're big monsters and they spray the audience with blood and slime and goop. And um, they've been around since the 80s. They were in Empire Records. A lot of people, whenever I say, I'm working on a Guar doc and they say, who's that? I go, remember Empire Records? Whenever Mark eats the brownies and he, they're like, oh, that's Guar. They were also <laughs> Beavis and Butthead's favorite band. They were the only band Beavis and Butthead actually liked. Uh, and actually a fun fact in the, the the Sega Genesis video game, the Beavis and Butthead video game, the whole point of it is to get to a Guar concert. Um and uh, they had a real famous appearance on the Jerry Springer show. Uh, and they're just a real interesting band. And um, my goal with that is I want to make a doc that even if you aren't a fan of heavy metal music or rock and roll music even, this is a human story of of tragedy and triumph and what it really means to be an artist and to stick to your guns uh, in a world that is constantly evolving and is it better to have that one hit or is it better to have a group of fans that will support you no matter what? And um, the guys from Guar have been very helpful. You know, they've they've been so respectful with their time. And I, I got to follow them around for a little bit and film them setting up. They, tr- they truly are the hardest working band out there. And that's what we really want to show. They're the hardest working band in show business. And in fact... Um, they're not even a band. Really, to consider them a band is actually incorrect. They're they're more like a traveling circus mm-hmm. than a band, and that's what I really uh, I hope people get a lot out of the doc. I think that if you're a fan of Guar, we want to make a doc that you will love, and if you've never heard of them, 
this is going to be something you're going to love too because it's a human story like i said of tragedy and triumph it's got the whole thing they're they're just i have so much respect and love for that band that's cool um i really love the fact that you just decided you know I want to make a movie, you know, with a friend and, and you did it. Like you actually, <laughs> you did what so many people say they're going to do or that people sit around thinking like, I know, I know, you know, it just seems, it seems like it's not possible, but, but you know, show, you show that it is. Um, what did you learn? Like, 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 I'm sure you learned a million things. What did you learn? That's like one of the huge things you're taking to your next film. So you're working on this new Guar doc. What's, what's something that you just like didn't know going in? Yeah. 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 So, um, a couple of things I learned is that it's really awesome to film some stuff, like just start filming. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, Adam and I, we just filmed this pitch video where it's basically just me and him with Guar, you know, we just got in contact with him and started filming. We just go so that then I could, I could show something to the band and go, this is kind of how I see this going. Are y'all into this? And also, you know, if you need some producers or investors or, you know, we interview a lot of cool people in the Guar documentary. We interview Ethan Embry, who is the guy that they ate uh, in Empire Records. We interview uh, Weird Al, <laughs> Thomas Lennon from the state, um, uh, a lot of just a lot of cool people. Uh, Bam Margera, uh, <laughs> and so we were able to show these people that and go see. This is what we're doing. This is real. So I would say, you know, I learned shoot something, just start filming it. I also learned um, about all of the. You know, I, I had filmed a lot of stuff and I edited a lot of stuff, so I wasn't really afraid of that. Uh, I knew that, you know, filming would be difficult, you know, especially with the limited budget we had. And um, I was ready for it and it was really fun. <laughs> it was, it never felt like work. You know, yeah, we were filming, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, but I mean, we were getting to meet, you know, Mark Summers and Keenan and Kel and it was really fun. So we knew what, what that, and, and I knew the editing process was going to be very long and arduous, but all the other stuff I, is what I really learned. Like, you know, once you're done, your work kind of just be, I mean, we finished this thing in 2018. Wow. And it's coming out now, you know, um, finding the right home and, and getting all your clearances and stuff can just take a long time. You know, I, um, for me, it was almost like it was in how long it took to get this out was in thirds filming it, editing it, and then finding a home and making the deal and getting it out there. So I learned that there were people that, that tried to take advantage of us. In what way? Um, trying to buy it and then, you know, maybe not having the bet, not having our best interests at heart. And that held us up for a little while. And I, so I learned that, you know, when you have something you're proud of, um, Stand your ground, you know, if someone is, 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 you know, offering you something, but then they kind of start acting a little bizarre, just move on. Cause if you're proud of it, you'll find the right home. And, and we found Gra- Gravitas and Gravitas, um, is great. They've been so great to work with. Um, so I learned that I think that the whole business end, I knew nothing about. So I would say if you can, luckily I had a lot of producers on this that did know that. So they were able to advise me. So I would say if you can find somebody that has been around the block, if you haven't, uh, I learned that. Thank God, you know, there was Bill Parks and Lee Leshin. They had made some films before. So they were able to kind of help us, you know, navigate some difficult, (laughs) difficult times. 
Well, I, I knew I was going to like the documentary because of the nostalgic aspect of it, but I really actually found it weirdly inspiring. Like there was, it was, um, I, I think because I didn't, I didn't have a lot of familiarity. These are not all people that are household names and the people behind Nickelodeon um, were really important in shaping the way that things look and feel and the sense of humor of a lot of kids. So that, I was, I was really inspired by it. So I, I, I think it was a great, great job you guys did. Oh, thank you. That, you know, that means a lot. Like I, I, I love it the most. Uh, I love it so much. Um, you know, and people that did were raised on the shows, you know, the response has been amazing. You know, we, so many people said, thank you for making this. You know, I teared up during this. And I think as a filmmaker, it's kind of cool when people are like, oh, I didn't even know these. And I liked this because, you know, that was always our goal to not rely on the nostalgia. The nostalgia is great. I love I love it. You know, obviously, I made a documentary about 80s and 90s Nickelodeon, but we wanted there to be something more. And that was really our sole goal is there's this whole channel that so many people loved, you know, Generation X and millennials, they, they, they love this, but they don't necessarily know why that was the difference between, you know, when you have somebody like Mr. Rogers, um, who was a huge influence on me, um, he was, you know, his magic because you were raised on it, but Jerry Laybourne was behind the camera. So we wanted to show you her genius because you didn't know it, you know, you were witnessing it, but you didn't know you were witnessing it. So that was our whole goal with this doc is to lift up these badass trailblazer people from the eighties and nineties who basically shaped your childhood and, and also shaped media. You know, the fact Mm -hmm. that we have the fact that we have creator driven cartoons now, like Steven universe, it all started with Vanessa coffee and Jerry Laybourne and those people doing it because nobody else was doing it. And they did it. Now we get to have things like the Cartoon Network because of them. And so that was our goal was to show these people shaped your childhood. And also look at all the cool stuff we have now. It's it, They shape media at large. So yeah. that's yeah. our sole goal. It is a feel-good film, uh, I think. <laughs> that was our goal was to create a feel-good film. And just it's a, it's a very positive, uplifting doc. That's, that's, that was, or at least that's what our goal was. So if, it, if people say this inspired me, then... That's great. <laughs> that's, yeah. we, that, that's the best compliment we can receive. Right on. Uh, just one last thing. I was gonna, yeah. if you, have you seen the, um, the, the documentary about Monster Squad? The, I uh, did. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, that, that's cool. That, I'd, I'd love to reach out to the director, who the director of that was the main guy from the Monster Squad. Yeah, I had him on the show. He's a super nice dude. Oh, yeah. that, that, that warms my heart to hear. Um, that doc is almost like a, like a, like a, sibling doc, uh, in it, a way, it, be- it, it, it felt, you know, there's, there's a similar, a similar thing about it. Like it's, there's a few, a few things about it, like people's intense right. relationship with this thing where they just have it in their brain. Like it's a part of who they are because of yes. how much of an influence it was on when, when they were a certain age. And that's yes. such a, that's such a thing. Like the things that touch you when you are, uh, you know, it, 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 at that age, it just, you, you never, you never shake that. Yes. And monster squad was like that because it was, it, 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 in a way, it was like Nickelodeon because it was super scary, but not too scary. Like your parents would still let you watch it. You know, it pushed it right up to the limit. But yeah, you, that that film, it's, it came out uh, about a month separate from ours, uh, maybe even less. And Gravitas, they're both put out by Gravitas. So um, we were really proud to be, um, you know, on the same team as, as, as that documentary. I'd love to reach out to him and just pick his brain about how, <laughs> how he went about making that documentary, especially how, how personal that doc had to be to him since he was, you know, in the movie. 
Yeah, and so much of his adult life has been around connecting with fans around. I think it's 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 an interesting story. He was uh, he was easy to reach on on Twitter actually. So you might just holler at him on there if you're if you happen to be on the cesspool that is Twitter. Uh, yeah, you, I, <laughs> I had to learn how to use social media for this film. I was off all of it, um, and and I, I got back on for this, and it, and it's pretty cool. Um, just because I, you know, getting to interact with the fans has been one of my favorite things, you know, getting to interact with other people that are passionate. But, you know, the the Monster Squad doc, another one that it reminded me of was Best Worst Movie. I don't know if you've ever mm. seen that. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, I love it. And it, and it was directed it's by the, Michael, the Troll 2. Troll, Troll 2. 2, yeah, yeah. And it was similar <laughs> in that it was directed by Michael Stevenson, who was the kid who was Joshua yeah. in in the film. Um, so that's kind of whenever I saw there was a Monster Squad doc, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then when I found out that uh, he was directing it, I was like, oh, that's even cooler. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for stopping by and hanging out. I, I uh, really enjoyed talking to you. You're going to have to come back when the, uh, the Guar documentary is ready. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to Movie Maker. You can check us out at moviemaker.com where we post stories about movies and movie making and movie makers every day. Movie Maker's print magazine is a awesome resource. If you are someone who's interested in the art and craft of making movies, I suggest you subscribe. You can uh, find us on social media at moviemakermag and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and say something nice about us while you're there, would you? We'll be back soon with another episode of Movie Maker and I hope you'll be there to join us. Until then, take care of yourselves.